This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.15. It's been a long, long time. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, a full-time podcaster, and a part-time meme smith. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and a bit in awe of Amaro this episode. Amaro is still Amaro, even after all these years. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 244 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our 38 newest patrons. New record. Bear with me here. Cameron W, Chris M, Tanner M, Sam I, Eric J, Matthew S, Canine Corps, Russell B, Ben R, Joe A, MMT, Rustafari 90, Calvin S, Eric L, Javier G, Juliet, David J S, Tyler R, Johnny, Alec R, Cole U, Marcus F, Tony V, Rodimus 13, Menace of Zeon, Grant B, Pat M, Joe Spin 82, Nicholas PK, Gordon C, three times faster Shikwatro, David H, Chrisney, Joshua P, Casper O W, Romy T. Max M and Karkorgi. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. Today is September 7th, 2019, and this past Sunday we finished our Podversary promotion. It was a huge success. We added 88 new patrons, 10 long-standing patrons upgraded their pledges, thank you, and it raised an additional $563 a month toward keeping MSB self-sufficient and independent. Thank you all. Our goal is to have all founding patron rewards mailed by the end of October, but please bear with us. We have more than 200 rewards to make and mail while still producing our weekly episodes. We will keep you updated about our progress. We are also pleased to announce that, with all the votes tallied, Mobile Suit Variations, ha ha, the bonus episode we made where Nina and Ali drunkenly reviewed the Mobile Suit designs for Mobile Suit Variations was selected by our listeners as the bonus episode that they would like to hear released to the general public. And so now we've done that. You can find the episode by going to our Patreon page or by going to any of our social media pages where we link directly to it. You can also find, and I strongly recommend you watch, the slideshow presentation that I put together to accompany the episode. Just a quick warning, though, this is an MSB After Dark episode. That means we do not bleep the cursing, so it may not be appropriate for all audiences. And as a secondary warning, if you are looking for a deep, intense look at the lore behind these mobile suits in the Gundam universe, you are not going to find it. This is purely about appreciating the aesthetics of the designs. The goofy, the wonky, the cool, and the other. 
Thank you again for the support, constructive criticism, wrong Gundam opinions, and community this past year. Here's to many more. At our current rate of progress, we will finish all Extant Gundam around 2035. This week, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 14, Amuro Flies Again, or Amuro Futatabi. And it's a names research episode. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about Garuda, Adumla, Sudori, and Ashimar. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. <laughs> And thank you for your service, Lieutenant. We'll break now for a message from our sponsors, but be sure to stay tuned after the break for the second of our Profiles in Heroism, in which I interview Major Buran Blutark about life, love, mobile suits, self-care, and his eyebrow grooming routine. You won't want to miss it. And we're out. We're off, right? Hey, can somebody get me a burger? I am starving. I had to fire my breakfast chef this morning. I caught her trying to unionize the kitchen staff, and she wouldn't even poach me an egg after that. Lou, we got five. Run downstairs and get me a, a McDaniels double burger. Extra military secret sauce. And get me a chicken sandwich. So anyway, I just don't know what we're going to do about this situation with the regular Federation forces. Right? It was bad enough when it was just Ayug nuking the rainforest, but now we've got a bunch of these traitors here on Earth running around wearing Federation uniforms and helping the Ayug. I was talking with Jamie. That's uh, Lieutenant Commander Jamaican Donninghan, but I call him Jamie on account of our close personal friendship. And he told me that it might be as much as 50% of the Federation forces that have gone over to the AUG side. 50%! I know regular Federation forces soldiers are all unreliable cowards, but 50%? People are going to notice that, right? Swamp gas. I really don't think they're going to buy that. No, weather balloons isn't any better. I don't know, folks. I think we might have to tell people the truth here. I am not having a stroke. I just think that at this point, with Ayug attacking the Earth directly, the fighting at Kennedy, and now a couple Garudas chasing each other over what used to be the United States, it might be impossible to keep people from finding out that the Federation forces have split into two factions and are at war with each other. And I think we need to get out in front of that. We're a news organization, aren't we? What do you mean, technically no? For tax reasons, TNN is legally a summer camp for at-risk male youth. Huh. Well, I guess that explains the interns. Hang on. Lou, what does that red light mean? Lou, why is the light next to the microphone red? Does that mean it's been on this whole time? And now the recap for Amaro Flies Again. At the Titan's base, Rosamia and her squad take off in pursuit of Adumla, the Garuda ship that Ayug has captured. They will reinforce Major Blutark's forces, the same group that attacked Karaba and Ayug at Kennedy. While Karaba intelligence knows that there are Titan's bases nearby, they have no choice but to take the current route. Quattro, certain that they will have to fight again soon, orders Camille to have the Mark II ready, but Camille is preoccupied thinking about Lieutenant Roberto's death. What we can do for Lieutenant Roberto now is return to space, Quattro reminds him, telling him to focus on the mission. There is no time for sentiment in war. 
Amaro was able to get Fra and her children tickets to Japan, and he escorts them to the airport. Katz is still angry, and Amaro asks Fra, What do you expect me to do? I'm being watched even now. Fra looks sad and tells him, Just remember, you won't gain anything by trying to become a child again. Leaning against a railing as he watches them head inside, he chews his thumbnail deep in thought. It seems there is a freighter at the airport. Inside, Fra and the kids seem surprised to see Amaro approach them again. Under cover of dropping the drinks and snacks he was bringing them, he asks Katz if he knows where Hayato is. They come up with a plan, and Amaro asks Fra if he can borrow Katz for a while. Immediately, Kika and Let's say that they will come too, but Amaro insists they need to stay and look after Fra. Once the baby is born, they can all catch a black market flight for the colonies. Over the intercom, airline staff announce that boarding has begun, and Amaro and Katz, pretending to be father and son, head to the restrooms. A suited man reading a magazine in the waiting area watches them walk across the room. It seems Amaro was not being paranoid after all. Through the restroom, Amaro busts open an emergency exit, and he and Katz go running down the stairs and across the tarmac, to the freighter Amaro noticed earlier. Sprinting up the stairs to the hatch with Katz behind him, Amaro pulls a gun, which he uses to club one pilot and threaten the other, forcing them both off the freighter. By the time the Federation spy thinks anything is amiss, Katz has already closed the hatch, and Amaro is preparing for takeoff. The spy tries to stop the passenger plane with Fra and the kids on it, but it's too late. They have already taken off and are on their way to Japan. Rosamia catches up to the Garuda, telling her squad to ignore any mobile suits and focus on the ship. Quattro takes a Dodai to fly the Hyakushiki out to the enemy, leaving the Mark II and the Nemos to fire from the open hatch. Rosamia's plane is actually a mobile armor, like a plant, capable of flying on its own even in Earth's gravity. Although Quattro is able to take out one of her squadron's mobile suits, Rosamia dodges nimbly away, striking at the Audumla itself. Tired of feeling as though he's waiting to be shot down, Camille grabs another Dodai and takes the Mark II out to support Quattro. Gloating that a mobile suit on a glider is no match for her gaplant, Rosamia bears down on Camille, but he jumps at the last second, landing the Mark II on the back of the mobile armor. He tries to crush the cockpit, but is thrown off when the gaplant begins to transform. It is another mobile monster, shifting from a plane-like form into a huge mobile suit form. Rosamia is sure she has a clear shot at Camille while he jets back to his Dodai, but she is interrupted by Quattro, who, having finally found them, fires his beam weapons. The Gaplant seems to deflect the beams, but it shudders and shakes all the same. Rosamia transforms back and retreats, needing to recharge the Gaplant before it runs out of power. Quattro and Camille return to the ship, where Camille prepares to be corrected by Hayato. However, Hayato surprises him. I don't think simply hitting you would improve your personality. Camille has the grace to look chagrined. I know Lieutenant Quattro saved me, and I am grateful, but that's not all. I was being pulled by that enemy mobile suit. Clinching his fist, Hayato admonishes that Camille better not be making excuses. Joining them, Quattro confirms what Camille said. They have encountered mobile armor like this before, Titan's mobile armor that radiates danger. On Blutark's ship, he welcomes Rosamia and her squad, and she thanks him for picking them up. It seems you aren't yet used to the Gaplant. You should use this mission to get accustomed. But you did slow the Aldumla. We will send a second wave after them now. They won't be expecting it. In the hangar, Blutark wears an oxygen mask, but Rosamia goes without. Don't you have trouble breathing at this altitude? No, sir. My lungs have been enhanced. Rosamia is a cyber new type from the Augusta lab. She heads to the bridge while Blutark prepares to launch his own mobile monster, the one he used to attack Karaba and Ayug at Kennedy, the Ashimar. 
This time, both Quattro and Camille launch immediately. They know their enemy is too dangerous to fight alone. They focus on keeping the mobile monster from getting above them, firing wave after wave of projectiles and coming at it from both sides at once. It is while the battle is getting underway that Amuro and Katz, in their stolen freighter, finally find Hayato and Karaba. Amuro, quickly assessing the situation, knows what he needs to do. Strapping on a parachute, he orders Katz to escape with the ship's Homo Avis glider and go to Hayato. Then he points the freighter directly at the mobile monster. Quattro and Camille notice the ship and wonder what it's doing there. Quattro is surprised to realize he can sense Amuro Rei is the pilot. Attacking as they fall through the sky, the two Ayug pilots are unable to keep the mobile monster away from the Audumla. It fights its way past them and heads straight for the bridge of the ship. Blutark gloats for a moment, but his feeling of victory is short-lived. Amuro crashes the freighter into the mobile monster, entangling its legs in the crumpling frame of the ship. They both begin to crash, and Amuro jumps free through a broken window, while Blutark transforms the damaged mobile monster back to its plane form and orders a retreat. Retrieved by the mobile suits, Amuro and Katz go to join the Karaba and Eyu crew aboard the Audumla. Quattro seems overcome with barely contained emotion on seeing Amuro again. Amuro can sense Char too, and the two of them look at each other across the open sky, rivals and fellow new types who have not seen each other since the last war. So you know I just made up Mobile Monster, right? That's not a real thing. Oh yeah, I know. It just feels like a great description for those particular machines. Because weren't you saying they're not mobile armors either? I mean, they're mobile armors in one mode and mobile suits in the other mode. Ah, so it's only a mobile armor when it's in its like plane shape? Yes. Okay. Or it's flying saucer shape or it's Zacrello shape. Well, they really ought to have a name for that. And can I recommend that they use mobile monster? <laughs> I actually have a couple of things that aren't from this episode that I have been meaning to talk about. Oh, really? Yeah. So the first one is when the Hyakushiki first showed up, I pointed out that I think there's a pun in its name because Hyaku sounds a lot like Hayaku, which means fast, which is the primary attribute that people associate with Shar, the red comet, who moves three times faster than an ordinary Zaku. So Shiki means type, and so the Hyaku Shiki is the Hayaku Shiki, the fast type. Very appropriate for Quattro, Shar. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I didn't put together until Nina did her research on the suffix ki, which gets added to Camille sometimes. So like, Kamiyuki is unit Camille. Camille plane. But ki is a suffix that gets added to aircraft a lot, right? So shiki could be type, which is the official translation, or it could be like unit four, because <laughs> she is another way of saying four in Japanese. And quattro is a way of saying four in Italian. So it's four's plane. Exactly. It's the fast quattro plane. <laughs> The puns are so deeply layered. You'll never find them all. This, of course, brings Tom so much glee. He's so happy. <laughs> thinking I can't about, help it. I love puns. Thinking about all the deeply layered puns. I love wordplay. I could dig into Gundam puns forever and never reach the bottom. 
The other thing I wanted to talk about was actually just from the previous episode. It's something that had we noticed it while watching, we definitely would have talked about it during the talkback, but I didn't notice it until I was going through the episode frame by frame later. And when Camille is trying to get back onto the escaping Aldomla, the big Garuda plane that they're taking to get away from Kennedy, he kicks one of the Hyzaks that is pursuing him. And the kick he does is like a perfect mirror of the famous red comet kick that Char does very close to the beginning of First Gundam. It's a quite famous scene because Char's Zaku basically kicks the Gundam right in its reproductive anatomy. (laughs) In the groin, right in the groin. (laughs) And then Camille does pretty much that same thing in this episode. And kicking like that, it's not very common in Gundam. It feels like an intentional allusion to that famous Char scene. Camille's learning from his mentor. I'm sure this will come up more in future episodes, but that does sort of beg the question. Everybody keeps talking to Camille and about Camille and saying, oh, he's the next Amuro Ray. Nobody says, oh, he's the next Char Asnabal. <laughs> Char was also a young prodigy. Yeah, yeah. Was that just because ultimately Char lost, or is there more to it than that? Are we meant to be seeing these two men who are from the previous generation of heroes as the two paths that Camille might follow? Hmm. Two models of what it means to be a hero in the Universal Century. Indeed. Being projected onto him by everybody around him. And I can understand why the people around him would want him to go down the Amuro Ray track rather than the Shah Aznable track, because all of the people around Amuro in First Gundam are still alive today, with a few notable exceptions. But Shah leaves a wake of destruction. Amuro protected people. We know from Amuro's sort of mental debates with Lala, his relationships were the primary driver for him. That was what he fought for. It wasn't about homeland, it was about these people who mattered to him. Amuro was driven by those relationships in the moment, his experiences of those people in the course of the story. A lot of Shar's motivations were also based on relationships with people, but they were all either past tense relationships, getting revenge for things that had been done to his family many years ago, or these ideals about what the future was going to hold. Yeah, I guess I see both of those as being less about relationships, because when you're talking in the past tense, there's no person for you to protect now like him seeking revenge for his dead parents is about him and his ego and his feelings it's not about his relationship with his parents because he has none at that point well it i mean he has obviously like very fond feelings or whatever but like they're not there to be like yeah you got vengeance (laughs) for me unless they're hanging out with lala in the place beyond time and space fair I always get the sense that there is all of that fallout around Char because Char's personal goals, which, yes, have to do with the shape that he wants society to take, but it's he keeps it very close to the vest. He's not, like, organizing a government mm-hmm. for this goal. He's got his own plots and plans that he's not really sharing with anyone, and then he pursues that so single-mindedly that any amount of fallout is acceptable to him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's nobody who's really on his side. So there is no one for him to take care of. 
But maybe they would be if they understood what it was he was trying to achieve. He never really opens up to anybody. <laughs> no. But I think even if he did have allies who really believed in the same thing that he was trying to achieve, they would always be less important than the ultimate goal he was trying to achieve. And so they would always be disposable if he felt like it would get him closer to that ultimate goal. Yes, but that doesn't mean people wouldn't be on his side. No, but it means he wouldn't have people worth protecting. Circling back around to when we first started and how... Uh, these two men could be seen as potential models for Camille. I actually don't think Camille's going to follow either. I think Camille is going to go his own way, in a sense. Well, when you're being pulled in two equal directions, physics states, and I think our science expert Iraj would back me up on this, <laughs> you'll go in a third direction between those two poles. Vectors. Just from the perspective of their different personalities, Camille doesn't really fit with either of those two molds. And the only one he's had to spend much time around so far is Quattro, and that we've seen some very clear conflict there. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to see how Camille interacts with Amuro. Speaking of Amuro, let's talk about Amuro Flies Again. Hayato and anyone who watched First Gundam could be forgiven for feeling a strong sense of nostalgia right now. Because once again, he is in a airborne mobile suit carrier fleeing across the continental United States, or what used to be the United States, according to the show, from east to the west, trying to escape via the Pacific Ocean while being pursued by an airborne mobile suit carrier and a bunch of enemies. Exactly like what happened in First Gundam. These little moments don't even surprise me anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> after the number of times that we've noted, oh, this is just like First Gundam. Oh, this other thing is just like First <laughs> Gundam. You know, it is clearly part of the way the show is constructed. Mm -hmm. It'll be more surprising when things don't fit. And so it's really interesting, I think, to look at the subtle differences between what's happening now and First Gundam. One of those gets brought up in this episode, and it's that in First Gundam, they always fought in these deserted, inhospitable areas, where if there was any sign of human habitation, it was like ruins. It was a destroyed city. It was a sunken town in a bomb crater covered by a lake. The world was empty except for our heroes and our villains, and the war had consumed everything. Now we see an earth that is relatively peaceful, inhabited, prosperous, and so our heroes and our villains are bringing the war to these people. They're bringing the war into inhabited areas. Both our new antagonist, Rosamia, and Quattro talk about this, and they each blame the other one for starting a fight in this inhabited area. Yeah, that's a funny moment. Why would they start a fight here? Why would they start a fight here? <laughs> Although, later in the episode, we have the more direct confrontation between Camille and Rosamia, and Camille is very angry that they are fighting over a populated area. And Rosamia, she doesn't actually say this, but the vibe is very much like, look at this baby worrying about the fact that we're fighting in a populated area in the middle of the fight. I think in the subtitles, she calls him a dimwit. Basically that once you're in the fight, you don't have time <laughs> And you shouldn't be expending your attention and energy thinking about things like that because the fight's already begun. You can't do anything about it now. 
But that's part of what makes Camille stand out from Quattro and from the others around him is that he does care about those things. Although the show, I think, has been giving about as much attention to the civilian consequences of all of this as Quattro and Rosamia do. They acknowledge that it's happening. We know that this is an inhabited area. We know that Amon was full of people, but the camera does not linger showing us the consequences, the effects. Zeta Gundam at this point is not only rhyming with First Gundam, it's also rhyming with itself in a bunch of ways. So in this episode, Amaro's escape from what is effectively military captivity at the airport in a bunch of ways resembles Camille's escape from military detention in episode one, right down to him like spotting a military vehicle that he can steal to use for his getaway, and then ending the episode by essentially crashing that vehicle and bailing out, just like Camille did with the Jeep. And then the other two that I noticed have to do specifically with Rosamia and the fight between her, Camille, and Quattro. One of them is that Camille has made a habit in Zeta of, rather than shooting or stabbing his opponents, of getting behind them somehow and like grabbing their mobile suits. He did it to Jared. He did it last episode with the, uh, what you termed the mobile monster. He grabbed hold of it. He does it this time with Rosamia's. And it's not something that we've seen other pilots do in the same way. It is distinctly Camille's. And then the other thing with Rosamia is right before she breaks off her attack, when she's about to kill Camille and Quattro interferes, we hear Quattro's voice very much distorted. And we hear it as Rosamia hears it, and he says something like, fall. And it startles her, and she's like, what was that? And then we hear Quattro's voice undistorted, saying the same thing again. Very much like episode five, when Camille was fighting with his dad, and we hear Quattro's distorted voice right before mm. we think Quattro shoots Camille's dad. And then after that, Quattro says something, his voice undistorted, very similar to what he had just said. We don't know if this is like a radio distortion thing, if this is actually literally being said by Quattro with his mouth that says words, or if this is a new type connection thing that Rosamia, who seems to be a new type, and Camille, who is a new type, are perceiving Quattro's intentions just before the thing actually happens. My vote's for new type stuff. She is quite the character, isn't she? I felt as if she spent most of this episode gloating <laughs> and talking about how great her mobile suit is. It is a great mobile suit, though. But every time somebody tries to fight her, it's like, haha, you on your, on your puny wave rider can't possibly compete <laughs> with my mobile suit. I'm so much more agile and mobile than you, even falling through the air. Well, and even when she gets hit dead on by Quattro's beam weapon, it rattles her, it uses up energy, but it doesn't take out the Gaplant by any means. Mm -hmm. To be totally upfront, I think the Gaplant is my favorite mobile suit so far in Nice. Zeta. I really like it, especially when it's transforming. Like its process of transforming is really cool. <laughs> the bit at the end when she transforms back into her plane shape and jets away, I was like, <gasps> <laughs> amazing. I love when it changes direction in midair. It does this a couple of times, but like one of its arms comes out and it changes the thruster position, which causes it to travel in a different direction. Yeah, it'll, it'll rotate. Yeah. Quattro even comments on how quick this is, but it's a really cool, very mobile. Very mobile mobile suit. Well, except when it's a mobile armor. Very agile. 
Yes, indeed. Other things that we know about her from this episode. She's a bit of a glamour puss. She's wearing very shiny lip gloss and has that very curled hair, which, I hate to break this to you, does not happen naturally. <laughs> that hair has seen curlers. Maybe her hair was enhanced. Maybe. Just like her lungs. That's right. Yeah, I buried the lead a little bit by talking about <laughs> the fact that she's very brash and likes to gloat and is very dolled up all the time. Uh, she is our first cyber new type. We hear it from Blutark. Major Buran Blutark. Which is the most bad guy sounding name. <laughs> Blutark. He makes vague reference to the fact that she's from the Augusta Lab. And we know that there are new type labs scattered over the world. We've heard reference to one in California. This is the first mention we've heard of the Augusta one, but it sounds as if this is something that is uh, widely spread. Right, and we don't know whatever happened to the Flanagan Institute, so there may also be new type labs in space. Then later, he makes a big show of needing this oxygen mask when she first arrives on his ship, and they're standing in the hangar. And he looks at her as he's leaving and goes, oh, wait, you don't need supplemental oxygen up here? And she says, no, my lungs have been enhanced. And that's pretty cool. Also kind of disturbing. True. But it goes beyond what you might expect from something called a new type lab of like, let's put the psychic kids in the ward and make them do spoon bending and card reading and remote viewing. Right. Instead, it's let's make a super soldier. Yes. Let's engineer the heck out of some human beings. That's that's definitely less bad. I never said it was less bad. <laughs> I never suggested it was anything but bad. Only that it's also cool. <laughs> wow, cool enhanced humans. I mean, it's a worthy point to say this goes beyond developing new type powers or trying to deliberately cause the development of new type powers, because up until now, we've mostly seen it happen by accident. Mm -hmm. And one gets the impression that the field of new type powers that are useful to the military-industrial complex only overlaps with a little bit of the total realm of new type powers. So there's a lot about being a new type that is probably confusing, scary, and useless to the Titans or the Federation or whoever. And there's a lot of things that they would like their super soldiers to be able to do, like breathing naturally at high altitudes, that doesn't really seem to be included in whatever Zeon Dekun was talking about. The unspoken bit of ugliness here is, are the young people being trained in these facilities, effectively enslaved. Hmm. Could they choose to leave? Hmm. Do they sign contracts when they're nine? Hmm. Do they get picked up as orphans and, while not technically enslaved, basically have nowhere else to go? There are a lot of orphans in the Universal Century right now. And how are they selected? Blutark makes the somewhat interesting comment that that Rosamia is almost showing the abilities that they'd expect. <laughs> that she doesn't seem to be quite fully trained or to have a full grasp of her powers and abilities. Maybe he just means because she failed in her attack on the Aldamla. Perhaps, but that's also right after he's talked to her about like, oh, I can see you're not quite used to like a plant yet. You'll use this mission to get accustomed to it. 
Could be. I mean, maybe like everybody else, he remembers Amuro Ray, or at least he remembers the legend of Amuro Ray, and he's expecting another new type super soldier, unstoppable. It does feel as if the Gaplant and Blutark's mobile suit, which have they told us its name yet? They haven't, but just for clarification, I feel like I can tell you this. It's called the Ashimar. Okay. They really do feel like next-gen technology, right? Yeah. They they are the new development that makes all the current mobile suits feel obsolete. The Masala, too. Jupiter Headband's mobile suit from uh, during the re-entry operation. Yup. Their ability to transform, their ability to fight inside Earth's atmosphere without additional, like, thrusters or or something to help them fly. Uh, They're apparently very heavy-duty armor. Yeah, Camille manages to score a direct hit through a gap in the armor on the Ashimar and still does barely any damage to it. Amuro crashes a plane into it. And it mostly just entangles the Ashimar. It doesn't actually damage it. It just Mm -hmm. gets it caught in the wreckage so that it has to transform to get free and then decides that now is the time to run. It did look like something, like some component got knocked off. Maybe. (laughs) And Char shoots it straight in where its mono eye is. Doesn't matter. Yep. Shatters some glass, but does not otherwise seem to inconvenience the Ashimar in any way. Yep. I noticed something about the Gaplant, and I checked in on some of the sort of like side lore about it, which confirmed what I noticed in this episode, which is it's very high performance, very low endurance. That makes sense. Rosamia mentions that if she moves around too much, she burns <laughs> through the, the energy capacity of the Gaplant and has to go let it recharge. Worth considering, mobile suits usually reflect their pilots. So keep an eye on Rosamia and see if she is also high performance, low endurance. Tom noticed something that went directly over my head because I was busy noting down other things about the episode. But while the translation is cyber new type, they don't actually say the word new type, which we know is a word that we hear people use throughout the show. People say new type. Or that one time Makvei said atarashi type. Right. They're but not, always typu. Right. And they're not saying the Japanese word for cyber and then new typu. They're not saying cyber new typu. What they're saying means enhanced human. And I understand that that was also the way the translation was originally done way back in the day before the official style guide was finalized. Which suggests maybe the idea behind her character at this point was not just let's use technology to make a new type, which is what you think of when you hear cyber new type. Maybe it was, let's make better humans through technology. I don't know that we will be able to hit on this this week, but mid-80s, talking about enhanced humans, we are going to have to talk a bit about early genetic technology, genetic testing, what was happening with all of that science at this time, because there were a lot of big breakthroughs in the mid to late 80s. This is also when cyberpunk as a genre is really taking off. One thing I noticed about the Gaplant and the Ashimar in this episode, they both have what are called gerwalk modes. What? It's a thing from Macross. So in Macross, there's the transforming robots. They go from jet fighters to robots, which I'm sure had nothing at all to do with these transforming... Jet fighter robots. (laughs) 
Now, when you put it that way, it starts to sound a little bit like there might be a connection. But in Macross, there's a mid-stage between robot and jet fighter, which is basically a jet fighter with robot legs. And that's the Gerwalk mode. At the time, it was quite unique to Macross and quite famous. Macross was only a couple of years before this. It was very influential. When you see the Ashimar in its like flying saucer mode, and it's got a couple of big old beefy robot legs coming out of it, or later when you see the Gaplant in the hangar, and it's like being worked on, but it's not in a bay or anything. It's just standing there on its robot legs while the rest of it is still in fighter mode. Mm-hmm. You start to suspect that there might be a connection. <laughs> I have to point this out. Rosumiya's attack on... Karaba and the Aldamla brings us back to that recurring theme in Zeta of not knowing who your enemies are. Because when she first sees it, she thinks it's the other Garuda-class transport plane, the Sudori, which is being commanded by Buran Blutark. So Rosumiya's attack on the Aldamla gives us kind of a bizarre series of scenes with Camille and Quattro and ultimately Hayato over this issue of who's going out, when to send them out, and whether or not to punish Camille for going out. I think we both agree that Camille was perfectly sensible and right to go out the way he did. Yeah, although there's a funny little back and forth where, like, first Hayato's ordering people out and Camille's like, we can't go out right now. And then later Camille goes out without being ordered to and gets in trouble. Like, Well, because first he gets ordered to stay in the ship by Quattro. Mm -hmm. Then Hayato's like, we need to send out the mobile suits. And Camille's like, too late for that now, old man. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Camille goes out himself anyway, Right. a little bit later. Taken together, it's pretty bizarre. Especially because later in the episode, when the Ashimar shows up to attack in a second wave, Quattro immediately is like, come on, Camille, let's go out together and do this. Well, that didn't strike me as odd because in the first fight, they don't know what they're up against. They recognize the Ashimar. They've fought it before. They know how tough it is. They know that it needs both of them. To even, like, stand a chance (laughs) against it. But I just don't see why Quattro would be so insistent on going out alone that first time. Yeah, I don't really either. Shrug. I mean, maybe he's jonesing for his battle fix. That's certainly Camille's take when he's like, I think that guy might just love war. (laughs) He does, Camille. He does. The the answer is yes, he does. (laughs) I love the scene with Hayato, though. Because Camille goes back fully expecting to get beaten for not following orders. And he's very in in Hayato's face about it. Like, oh, am I going to get a correction now? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Hayato (laughs) looks at us like, punching you won't fix your personality. And I just wanted to be like, snap. (laughs) Somebody get Camille some ice for that burn. (laughs) Both a sick burn and some real words of wisdom from Hayato there. It's easy to pass this off as just like a fun moment, but it brings up an important point, which is that in the past, other people have looked at Camille not doing what they want, and they see it as a behavior issue that can be changed by physically punishing the behavior they don't want so that they get the behavior they do want. Hayato has realized that this has very little to do with strictly behavior and a lot to do with Camille's personality, which he's not going to beat Camille out of a personality. Hayato's got three teenage kids. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> Ooh. Although, when he senses that Camille might be making excuses, he does get the, the tight fist at his side. His knuckles are itching for action. So he's not completely different 
from the people Camille has dealt with before. No. He also does not want to hear excuses for the behavior. Well, he doesn't trust Camille's intuition. This was a recurring theme on the Agama. People just don't trust Camille when he says, I had a new type feeling. Everybody wants him to be a new type. Nobody's willing to treat him like a new type. They might if he owned it. Maybe. He never describes it as like, oh, I had a new type thing. He always is like, oh, I just had I had a feeling. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, some teenager who's in trouble for doing something they weren't supposed to do telling you, well, but I, but I had a feeling. That doesn't sound like new type stuff. That sure. sounds like whining. Sure. <laughs> As opposed to like if he was like, I had a new type experience, they'd be like, oh, okay, got it, kid. Yeah, but this is me completely hypothesizing, but maybe when Camille was growing up, kids who talked about having weird feelings disappeared. Gotta fill those new type labs somehow. I don't disagree. And I also think Camille is not emotionally intelligent enough or savvy enough to manipulate other people. He's just not. No, no he's not. <laughs> he's so earnest and he's so like bullheaded about it. Yes. This, I think, is actually reflected in that practice he has of like grabbing onto and grappling with other mobile suits. Because he's just like, he grabs the plant and he's like, how can you fight here? You're hurting these innocent people. I will crush you. <laughs> and her response to that is just hurry up and crush me already. You dimwit. <laughs> Part of me wonders if Hayato's reluctance to believe Camille about his intuitions, like what happened on the Argama, is also connected not just to Camille's personality, but to the hierarchical difference between them and the power structure. Because he thinks it's Camille making an excuse for not following orders, when really Camille is just trying to relay important information to Hayato. To a person who is higher up in the hierarchy, that can sound like insubordination. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Also, again, I think this is a fault in Camille's communication skills more than anything, but like <laughs> that scary mobile suit had a scary aura. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a good reason for someone to disobey orders and leave the <laughs> ship. <laughs> and Quattro speaks up for him. Which is interesting in and of itself because we've seen Quattro undermine Camille's relationships with other people before. So for whatever reason, he wants Camille to be on good terms with Hayato. Or he doesn't view Hayato as a threat. More fool him. <laughs> the earliest episodes of Zeta, let's say like one through ten or so, are all about positioning Camille as a problem. Camille is this headstrong, wayward youth who goes off on his own initiative and punches Titans and gets arrested and steals the Mark II and like is late for meetings and has to be disciplined. And he's always positioned opposite all of these adults, Quattro, Rekoa, Emma, and the ghost, the phantasm of Amaro. These are the people who have it together. These are the heroes. These are Camille's models for behavior. And of course, they're also the ones disciplining him. Although usually the real source of authority is a Wong Lee or a Captain Beckner or a Blex saying, you should be more like Emma or Rekoa or Quattro or the ghost of Amaro. But after about episode 10 in Zeta, we start to see that Rekoa and Quattro and Emma and actual human person Amaro are themselves totally 
unequal to their responsibilities. The adults are also all messed up and unable to cope with what is expected of them. The other discussion, the other conflict we see Camille have in this episode is with Quattro right at the beginning when they're preparing to be attacked because they're sure it's going to come at any time. And Camille seems almost affronted that they haven't talked about Roberto's death. How can we be just going on as normal when Lieutenant Roberto has died? Well, for one thing, Camille, this is normal for Quattro. And I'm saying that kind of flippantly, but I really do think that's the point of this scene. Quattro tells him, you must forget your sentiments during wartime. But for Quattro, war is a perpetual endeavor. It's always wartime. I come back to the observation that I had last episode that at some point, Quattro stopped grieving because if he truly let himself grieve and feel all of these things, it would paralyze him. Like, how could he go on? if he let himself feel the enormity of all of it. Yeah, and it creates a perpetual feedback loop because to get away from those feelings, he throws himself more and more fully into this all-consuming, addicting pursuit of war, of battle, which keeps him from feeling the things, but it gives him more things to feel. If he were ever to stop and just actually let himself experience all those feelings that he's keeping at bay, he would, like you said, be paralyzed. He would probably spend like seven years living in a fancy house doing nothing. (laughs) I'm nodding vigorously. (laughs) And because Camille is too young to question or know better, he seems to accept Char's explanation of, well, the only thing we can do for Roberto now is keep fighting for Ayug, which means we need to get back into space. Like, that needs to be our focus, that needs to be where our attention is, not on grieving for our departed comrade. I wonder what Roberto actually would want from them. We never got much of a sense for him as an independent character, like what his ambitions or goals or desires were, why he was here with Ayug, except that this is where Apoli and Quattro were, and he was linked to them inextricably at this point. So he might want Camille to go back into space and continue the fight, or he might want Camille to go have a drink and a cigar and find a sexy lady to spend the night with. Or sexy man. We don't know those details of Roberto's life. Absolutely. You're right. But we know what Camille's into. 100% of ladies. (laughs) He has a crush on every girl. (laughs) After seeing Amro so conflicted in the previous episode... We see him, in this one, make a decision. But what I wonder is, are the cumulative effects of the position that he's in and Katz's disdain for him and Fra's, like, gentle disappointment, <laughs> is, it, is this, like, the final straw? Or is it simply because this is the first time he's had an opportunity? Because he's there, they've gone into the airport, he's sitting by himself, chewing his thumbnail, and he sees the freighter. And if there's one thing that he demonstrates in this episode, it's that he like knows what to do and acts on it. He assesses situations very quickly, comes up with a plan immediately, and goes for it. Once he decides to act, there's no hesitation. Despite the fact that it feels very sudden and very quick, there's always a plan. You know, he brings the food and drinks over and drops them to give himself a reason to be kneeling down and talking quietly to everyone. He pretends to be Katz's dad and it's like, oh, you should go to the bathroom before we get on the plane. Let's go. 
Once they bust through the door, they run for the freighter. He's got a gun on him. (laughs) He's immediately ready to take out the pilots. He immediately knows what to tell cats to do. He takes off on what is not a runway so that they don't interfere with Fra's plane taking off. So that Fra's in the air before anyone realizes that anything has gone wrong. And even when they finally reach Karaba, the moment Amuro sees the battle, he's like, oh, I know exactly what I need to do. I have to crash this plane into that mobile armor. Cats, Cats get out. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm going to put on this uh, parachute and go crash a plane. Yep. <laughs> um, which does to some degree beg the question, like, could he have created the circumstances he needed to run away sooner if he'd really wanted to? Well, the circumstances he needed to run away, I think was motivation. He needed to have something to go do and he needed to want to do it. He still does seem very motivated by other people's like esteem of him. Mm-hmm. There hasn't really been with Amro a sense of like, what the Titans are doing is wrong and I'm going to stop them. It's like, everybody expects me to go be a hero again. So I'm yeah. going to go do the Amro thing and be a hero again. And it turns out he was not paranoid after all. He is in fact being followed and watched all the time. And when his minder realizes that Amuro is away clean, he tries to stop the plane with Fra and the kids on it. So that he could have them as leverage, presumably? Leverage and information. They might know where Amuro had gone. He had seen them all together. It's interesting how they talk about the world in this episode. At one point, Hayato and Quattro are discussing the state of the Titans military apparatus. And Hayato observes that they are still in what used to be the United States. And so there are military bases everywhere, which thanks for that dig, Hayato. (laughs) But then Fra talks about escaping to Japan. And then from there going to New Hong Kong to get tickets for a space shuttle into the colonies, suggesting that the Federation's control on Earth is significantly weaker in some places. They also, I think, significantly don't say the place that used to be Japan. They simply say Japan. I don't think we have enough information yet to know what that means. Although we do know that it was difficult for Amuro to get them tickets. One gets the sense that travel is pretty heavily restricted. Yeah, especially if you're Fra Kobayashi. Part of me wonders if the reason Amuro immediately knew what to do when he spotted the battle between the Ashimar and the Karaba mobile suits is because he does in this episode what Matilda did in the episode where she died. He crashes a plane into an enemy mobile suit in order to save a ship full of his allies. And not for nothing, almost the same thing happens. It doesn't crush the cockpit, but it crushes right behind the cockpit and it busts open all of the glass around the cockpit windows. And leaves the mobile suit basically intact. It's a very similar moment. And we know that Amaru is still hung up on Matilda. I think hung up on sets the wrong tone. Perhaps. I'm not sure we can do any better than to say that she's still a very significant person in his life, even though she's now been dead for quite some time. That she made a huge impression on him at a really important time in his life, and that that memory is still one that he cherishes. Yeah, the picture of him with Matilda is the only relic of his time on the White Base that has survived into his new life in his mansion. 
Okay, we have to talk about the ridiculously romantic tone of Amro and Char's reunion. Everything about that scene spells out romance in the language of visual media. They both sense each other before they see each other. <laughs> Which is great, because the freighter goes flying by and Quattro's like, what are you doing, Amaro? Wait, Amaro? <laughs> Amaro? And then Amaro's like, oh, I thought I sensed Char. Char in the Hyakushiki, once he's seen Amaro in the Mark II's hand, is like the most emotive that I think we've seen him in all of Zeta. He is trembling. His hand is shaking. His eyes are shaking, almost like he's trying not to cry. Or it's something. They're like very bright and they're drawn very prettily, even though uh, they're sort of narrowed. Yeah, the impression I get, if I had to pick a feeling that he's feeling... It would be like deeply unsettled. <laughs> I don't think it could be summed up as any one feeling. There's a lot roiling around in there. And I think just feeling feelings is enough to make him feel unsettled. That's probably true. But there's a powerful nostalgia. There's a, tell me if I was imagining this, but I could have sworn that I heard a bit of a quaver in his voice. I think so. Yeah. I never expected to see you again. And then there's like shining golden sunlight around Amaro. And then for some reason, the light from inside the Hyakushiki is also shining and golden. So it silhouettes Char when he appears. They're both looking at each other across the distance. It's like gazing at each other. It's an extended gazing scene as the mobile suits are descending through the atmosphere. Well, and the mobile suits are posed in a way that looks... Like they're conversing, mm, like the mm -hmm. postures even of the mobile suits right. feel not necessarily intimate, but friendly. Oh, no. See, I think <laughs> You intimate. think very intimate. What this feels like to me is a whole lot of visual cues borrowed from other genres, specifically from romance. Because the way the mobile suits are posed to me looks like the way you would do a still frame of two lovers, like running together or walking mm. together on a promenade, their hands almost touching, like a little bit of wind. <laughs> I could see that. The sunset behind them. Right. Yeah, I would be hard-pressed to come up for an interpretation of this scene that is not at least a little romantic. Like, yeah, I, I don't really see how you could watch the scene and take that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially the way it ends. It fades into this, like, painted still. Mm-hmm. Like they did at the end of Jaburo, they do this on occasion with some of the episodes, mm -hmm. but this one is so beautiful and warm. And Camille and Katz, who are part of this scene, just kind of disappear. They fade out of notice as Amaro and Quattro become lost in the experience of each other. But there's also an edge to this, because when Quattro first sees Amaro lying in the Mark II's hands, the camera on Quattro starts right down by his hand, and you can tell his trigger finger is quivering. Mm. As he told Amaro in their big fight at the end of First Gundam, if you're not with me, I need to kill you. <laughs> yeah, and this is the best opportunity he has ever had. But he's also not Char anymore. He's very insistent with everyone that he is <laughs> not Char Aznable. Shar Aznable might have killed Amuro right there. Oh, Shar Aznable definitely would have. But would Quattro Bagina? Does Quattro Bagina look like the kind of guy who would kill Amuro Ray?
And now our research section. First Garuda, then Audumla and Sudori, the names of the particular Garudas, and then Nina will close us out with some research on Ashimar, the mobile monster piloted by Buran Blutark. In Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, the Garuda is a large atmospheric transport ship. But in our world, the Garuda is also a legendary figure found in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain mythology. Sometimes the Garuda is depicted as a bird, specifically a kite, which is a kind of bird of prey, or a Javan eagle. Sometimes it is more anthropomorphic, a man with wings and a few other bird-like features. Everything from a man's head on a bird's body to a man's body with wings and a beak. <laughs> In some mythologies, Garuda is king of the birds, with wings so powerful they can stop the turnings of the heavens, the earth, and even hell. Garuda is the mount of the god Vishnu. Garuda is a sun deity, the personification of courage, and a shapeshifter. He defeats numerous gods and steals the nectar of immortality to save his mother from enslavement. Or, Garuda are golden-winged deities, enemies of Nagas and protectors of the Dharma. Listening to the Garuda Upanishad on a new moon night was said to make the listener immune from snake bites for 12 years. Hmm. In Hinduism, Garuda's association with Vishnu means that it too is a symbol of duty, of fighting against evil and injustice. Images of Garuda, with or without Vishnu, are often used to convey divine approval of the state. Unsurprising, then, that Garuda is part of the state insignia of India, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, and Indonesia. You're right, that is unsurprising. <laughs> Garuda is also strongly associated with fighting prowess, an implacable warrior advancing on their enemy like an eagle bearing down on a snake. As the enemy of snakes, who represent death and the underworld, Garuda represents birth, heaven, the sun, and fire. Organizations named for the Garuda include Indonesia's National Airline, an elite special forces unit in the Indian Air Force, an airfield for the Indian Air Force, Indonesian peacekeepers serving under the United Nations, and a U.S. Navy Prowler Squadron. Given the associations with both martial prowess and legitimizing the power of the state, Garuda is in fact a perfect name for the Federation military to use for one of its carriers. I always like it when the names make sense within the world. Wasn't there also a story about how much the Garuda loved his mother? Well, like I mentioned before, he frees her from enslavement. Uh, there are a few different versions of the story, but basically, Garuda's mother was one of several wives of a powerful demigod or something. I'm not clear on his role. Some sort of divine figure with a bunch of wives. Each of these two wives asked for a favor of him, and the first wife said she wanted a thousand sons. And so she birthed the Nagas. She laid a thousand eggs, and those eggs hatched into Naga. This feels like classic, be careful what you wish for sort of situation. I want a thousand children. Okay, but they're all going to be snakes, and you're going to give birth to a thousand snake eggs. And then Garuda's mother, thinking she's being very clever, she's like, okay, I only want two sons, but I want each of them to be as strong as her thousand sons. <laughs> so she laid two eggs. She got very impatient for them to hatch, so she opened one early, and the son that was born admonished her. Like, he was very powerful, but he wasn't fully formed yet. I don't think he has legs. The legs are just for show. The, the top brass don't understand that. And so he admonished her to be patient with the second one and let it grow all the way, and what hatched is Garuda, who is ridiculously powerful. 
However, Garuda's mother also loses a bet at one point and becomes enslaved. Garuda goes to his half-brothers, the Nagas, to say, like, well, how do I, how do I rescue her? How do I free her? And they say, well, we'll help you if you bring us the elixir of immortality from the mountain of the gods. Garuda fights past a whole bunch of gods, because Garuda is just that strong, and steals the nectar of immortality, but tells all the Naga, like, okay, but obviously if you're going to drink this nectar of immortality, you should, like, purify yourselves first. So the Naga all go to bathe after they've already freed the mother. And one of the gods comes and steals the nectar back before the Naga can drink it. Ah, fiddlesticks. Well, that was on purpose. That was that was part of Garuda's plan. <laughs> I'm sure I'm leaving out parts. This is myth. The tradition is to leave stuff out. But uh, that's the rough bones of that story. I hadn't remembered that bit about the gods stealing the nectar back while the serpents are all off bathing. That's really interesting because in a second, I'm going to mention the Gilgamesh story. And in the Gilgamesh story... Although this isn't directly related to what I'm going to be talking about. At one point, Gilgamesh convinces the gods to give him the nectar of immortality. Essentially, it's like it's actually like a thistle. It's like the thorn of immortality. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but he's going back to his city because he doesn't want to use it on himself without testing it first. So he's going to find a really old person in his city and like prick them with the thistle and see if they become young again. Mm. But he goes to take a bath while he's on his way back to his city and... I believe a snake comes up and steals the thistle from him. Ha! Snakes. And that is what teaches him the futility of seeking immortality. Yeah, the whole bit about the Garuda Upanishad, uh, a bunch of scholars have studied it and say it's basically a snake charm. It's basically about <laughs> preventing snake bites for people who lived in a region where they were frequently moving through like dark, dense jungle <laughs> and were going to be around snakes all the time. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, invoking this bird that hunts and kills snakes was used as sort of a charm against snake bite for a mm -hmm. lot of people. In one of my sources, they talked about a Chinese Buddhist story where a bunch of creatures and sort of like humanoid creatures are listening to a, a wise man disclaim about you know, various Buddhist topics. And one of these humanoid creatures farts in the middle of the, <laughs> uh, in the, middle of the discourse and Karuda gets angry and kills it. And so Karuda gets banished for <laughs> killing this other creature. So Garuda is hot-tempered, is what I'm saying. While Nina was digging into the extensive mythology of Garuda and its many incarnations in our modern world, I decided to investigate the two Garudas that escaped from Jaburo. The green Sudori, recaptured at Kennedy by Blutark's task force, and the red Audumla, current base of operations for the Karaba and Ayug remnants. First, the Sudori. With names in Zeta Gundam, I find it's usually best to start with religion and mythology. Besides the Garuda, there are the Titans from Greek myth, the Nemo or Nemo from the Odyssey, Capricorn might come from Capricorn, the Dios in Rik Dios most likely comes from Dios or Deus for God, Argama is almost certainly from the Hindu Agama, and you'll just have to trust me that there will be plenty more coming up soon. There are two mythological names that sound very close to Sudori. The first is Siduri, a woman from Sumerian and Akkadian myth who plays an important role in the Epic of Gilgamesh. 
We're going to be coming back to the Epic of Gilgamesh in a few years because I think it has some suspicious parallels to the storyline of G Gundam, but for now I'll simply say that due to various circumstances Gilgamesh is very much distraught and on a journey to the ends of the earth. He shows up at a divine tavern on the shores of the ends of the earth, and there he meets Siduri, who is the alewife, the tavern keeper. She is herself a goddess, and she plays the role of taking Gilgamesh to task for letting himself become so distraught that he has completely abandoned all self-care. She also then acts as a kind of pseudo-psychopomp, which is to say a pseudo-guide into the realm of the dead. She directs him to the ferryman who carries him across the waters to the immortal beings who tell Gilgamesh that his quest for immortality is dumb and stupid and he should stop it immediately. <laughs> So that's a possibility. The name kind of matches, but I don't think that the story connected to Siduri is a very good match for the Titans Sudori Garuda. There is a second name from mythology that sounds like Sudori and I think is a much better fit, and that is the Norse Sudri or Suthri. Sudri is one of a set of four dwarves named after the four directions, Austri or East, Nordri or North, Vestri or West, and Sudri, South. There are a couple of really good reasons to think that the Sudori is named for Sudri rather than Siduri. First, Japanese Wikipedia says so. <laughs> you didn't tell me you Japanese Wikipedia, <laughs> and you didn't even need my help. I'm so proud. There's no citation for the claim, unfortunately, but it's better than nothing. Second, Tomino is reported to have said in an October 1985 Animec magazine interview that he originally envisioned a set of four Garuda planes and that would track neatly with the dwarves of the four directions. But the most compelling argument, to my mind, comes from the story that connects Audumla and Sudri. Audumla, or Althumla, is part of the Norse creation of the cosmos, as related to us by Snorri Sturluson in his 13th century compilation of myth and legend, The Prose Edda. Unfortunately, the information that we have about Norse myth today largely comes from works like the Prose Edda that were compiled from ancient pagan oral folklore but compiled hundreds of years after the Christianization of the Nordic countries. And so it can be hard to know what parts of these tales are authentically Norse, and which ones are borrowed from Christian or Greco-Roman traditions to lend some additional legitimacy to the text in the eyes of its medieval authors. We can glean some hints from the archaeological record and from the writings of Roman-era historians who offer a few morsels of information about the early religious practices of the Germanic tribes. In many cases, the myths that have come down to us are rich tapestries embroidered in detail, but all too often they feel more like sketches that were meant to be filled in by readers who were already familiar with the stories from other sources. And one final warning, I am doing my best on the pronunciation here, and I apologize to all of our listeners, and especially our listeners from Nordic countries, for any pain I inadvertently cause you. <laughs> we will include links in the show notes to videos where you can hear the actual experts whose pronunciations I am doing my best to imitate. But with all of that in mind, Audumla, Sudri, and the creation of the universe. At first, there was nothing an incomprehensibly vast nothingness, called Gnungagap. At one end of Gnungagap, the nothingness gave way to heat, to fire, to lava, to searing winds heavy laden with sparks. This was Muspelheimer, guarded by Söter. He was a creature called a Jotun, or Thurs. In English, this is usually translated as giant, but that's misleading. 
The Jotun of Norse myth were not necessarily particularly large, and even if they were huge of size, there was a lot more going on than just that. These were a lineage of beings much like the Asir gods, related to them, in fact, but destined from the birth of the world to oppose them, even unto its end. A better translation might be demon or chaos god. I will call them Jotun in the singular and Jotnar in plural. After Muspelhammer and Surtr, at the opposite extreme of Gunungagap, a land of cold mists formed. This was Niflheimer, the land of ice and snow, land of the dead, dark as the grave. As Surtr and the fire Jotnar inhabited Muspelhammer, a dragon called Nidhogr resided amidst the ice with countless hordes of its kin. From the heart of Nivelhamer, the great river Elevagr flowed, the dragons drank from it, and dripped their venom into it. And though the bitter cold froze the river within its banks, bit by little bit its envenomed waters inched towards Gnungagap. Ages passed, but then the sparks from Muspelhamer and the icy river Elevagr met in Gnungagap, became rain, and from the rain two creatures formed. Umir came first, a frost jotun, filled with the dragon's poison, and second, the primordial cow, Audumla. Her name likely means the hornless cow rich in milk, or perhaps she who brings an end to the desolate realm. Her milk fed Umir in the emptiness of Gnungagap, and while he drank, she found some salty ice near the edge of Niflheimer and began to lick at it. After a day of licking, she found a hair in her food, but since there was nothing else to eat, she kept licking, and over the course of two more days, she revealed Buri, the first of the gods. Meanwhile, Umir did what is now traditional after drinking a lot of warm milk, and he fell asleep. And while he slept, the heat from Muspelhamer made him sweat. His sweat became two more Jotnar. And while he was sleeping and sweating, his, uh, his right leg mated with his left leg and produced a son. Huh. And from these three descended all the generations of Jotnar. <laughs> huh. Huh. Buri, the cow licked, had a son named Bor. Don't ask how, we have no idea. It probably did not involve his legs. <laughs> Bor married a Jotun woman named Bestla, and with her he had three sons. And then, in a story strikingly similar to the cyclical myths of Uranus, Kronos, and Zeus in the Greek tradition, those three sons of Bor decided that Umir, the progenitor being, needed to die. The stories aren't clear on this point either, but it seems that all of that dragon poison in him had either made Umir kind of a nebulously evil spirit, or perhaps it was that the small handful of Asir gods were deeply concerned about the astonishing procreative powers of the Jotnar. I mean, yeah, if you can just, like, sweat to produce children, or if your legs can somehow mate with each other, uh... Yeah, it does seem in the Norse myth like the Jotnar have a kind of procreative, sexual, Asexual chaotic power. Something like that, yeah. Whereas the Asir have a lot more, some of the sources I read call it sexual shame. Mm, more like people. They're much more conservative about who they let their legs have sex with. <laughs> Definitely not their other leg. Whatever their reasons, the three young Asir ambushed Umir while he slept. They battled with him long and savagely, but in the end, they were able to cut his throat. Blood poured from his body until it filled Gnungagap and drowned all of the countless Jotnar, save two who will in time get their revenge. Bah, bah, bah. This blood of Umir became all of the seas and the rivers of the world. The brothers then took Umir's exsanguinated corpse and divided it to create the world. 
His flesh became the land, his bones became the mountains, his teeth became boulders, his brains became clouds. His skull they set over all of it, forming the celestial dome of the sky, and with his eyelashes they built a fence around this new-made world, to protect it from all the horrors still residing in Muspelhamer, Niflheimer, and the outer reaches of the cosmos. The area enclosed by that eyelash fence they called Midgar. For themselves, they created Asgarder to be their home. And now I should tell you the names of those three brothers, for they were Vili, Ve, and chief among them was Odin, or Othin, leader of the Asir, from the murder of Umer to the end of days. They wandered the world they had created, and soon they discovered creatures living within the earth, perhaps created by Umir even after his death. These they transformed, giving them reason, human-like shape, and a name, dwarves. And like with the giants, it's not clear that these dwarves were actually short. They were just lesser divine beings compared to the gods and the Jotnar. And at this point, Odin and his brothers had become somewhat concerned about the structural integrity of this world they had built. In particular, Umir's skull must have started settling ominously, because the Asir enlisted four powerful dwarves to hold up the heavens for them. Thus enters Sudri, along with Austri, Vestri, and Nordri, those who are sworn to keep the sky from falling, or to put it another way, to protect the earth from space. So yeah, I think that works for the Titans Garuda. They're holding up the sky, just like Atlas, who was one of the Titans. Hmm. I'm sure there's no connection whatsoever. As for the Ayug's Aldumla, I offer two interpretations for this name. First, the primordial cow of myth offers the sole source of sustenance in a desolate and hostile land. Likewise, the Aldumla allows the Ayug pilots to escape from the trap at Jalboro, and it becomes their place of rest and safety while on the run. But second, Norse myth is defined by the eons-long conflict between the Jotnar and the gods, with the gods representing something akin to goodness versus the evil-ish Jotnar. But the ancestor to all the gods, Uri, is frozen in the ice. He can only emerge to sire the whole lineage of gods, setting their destiny in motion and guaranteeing the apocalyptic clash that must one day come after he is gradually thawed by Audumla. Amuro, Quatro, and Camille have each, in some sense, been frozen. But since the Audumla appeared in our story, they have each begun to change. Two things came up when I tried to look for an influence for the name Ashimar, Ashimaru. <laughs> Asian Marine Services Public Company Limited, a Thai company that does ship repair and goes by Asimar, and the Asimar in Dungeons and Dragons, a fictional race of humanoids descended from angels and other celestial beings. But despite Japan selling Asimar their first floating dock in the early 80s, <laughs> it's hard to see how those could be connected. <laughs> And the D&D Asimar appeared to have been created from whole cloth in the mid-1990s. Tom told me a fan theory that the name derives from Ashimata, which literally means something like, oh, I have done something regrettable, <laughs> and is sometimes translated as, oh, although the dictionary sticks to the more family-friendly, oops, darn, and <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> ah is an expression of surprise, but Shimaru can mean to be shut, to close, to tighten, or to be locked, all of which 
could refer to the transforming action of the Ashimaru when it goes from its massive humanoid form to its more compact, plain form. I also wanted to touch on possible visual references. When in its humanoid form, the Ashimar looks a bit like it's wearing a hood. The orange color of the hood is the same as the color on its pauldrons or shoulder pieces and is also across the chest. We thought this was a bit similar to what you see in old-fashioned ninja costumes, as Tom talked about last season when we talked about Kaecilia's outfit, but it also resembles the zukin, or cloth head covering, worn by warrior monks called sohei. The zukin doesn't just cover the head, it also wraps around and drapes over the chest and shoulders. I thought the shoulders were also reminiscent of kataginu, which is the stiff, pointy-shouldered vest worn with hakama by Edo period samurai and courtiers. Although to be fair, any big ol' shoulder pauldrons, especially if they like curve or are pointy, uh, well, curve in a specific way. Like, there are a lot of different types of pauldron that would be reminiscent of kataginu. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually don't think the floating dock one is impossible, given the timing. And I'm pretty sure that the Ashimar launches from water when we first see it. It does, but also, like, it in and of itself has nothing to do with, like, ship repair. Like, I could see them naming, a, like, a large freighter or a base or something. I don't know. It feels like a weird connection. Yeah. Or it could just be a Tominoism. Yep. It could just sound cool. <laughs> The real question is, did the makers of Dungeons & Dragons get the name Asimar from Gundam? There was one term you used when you were talking about Norse mythology that sounded like Ashim. Or oh, Ash um, Asir. Asir. You might like, be more familiar with the pronunciation Asir mm. or Asir. Odin, Thor, most of the Norse gods you're familiar with mm -hmm. are Asir. Because somebody could also have taken the beginning of that and then sort of like, okay, let's just add some syllables and because they're descended from gods, right? Like, it's a notion. Yes. Hmm. Next time on episode 2.16, Where the Water Meets the Sky, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 15 and a very traumatized young woman. Lala, can you hear me now? Generation Chicken Little. Hayato's Master Plan. Be cool. Amuro's Chronic Genki Deficiency. Hey, it's the line from the meme. That's what she does. She brings fruit and she knows things. Some of the Golden Gate Bridge. Camille gets Camilled. And how many doors do I have to shut in your face before you leave me alone? You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. 
You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, if it weren't for the Titans, we'd all be speaking Xeon by now, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from our patron, Joffina. Thank you, Joffina. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. should never be allowed to back up. They can only go straight forward. Trucks shouldn't be allowed on city streets. Is it Rosamia or Rosamia? I'm audibly shrugging right now. Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) You'll believe me. I will. If not for the Titans, we would all be speaking Xeon by now. I like that one. Let's go with it. Okay. Greetings from Podcastoria, New York. No. And who made you such a wizard? What? A person possessed of wisdom. <laughs> I think that's the actual etymolo- etymological origin of a wizard. Oh, same as... Oh, I was reading a really neat thing yesterday that to go comes from one root, but past tense went it comes from a different one <laughs> don't put that in the episode unacceptable i keep saying things that aren't really what i mean uh. and then you're like that's not the case i'm like i know it's not the case <laughs> <laughs>